Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode number seven of the Lions Den podcast. I'm your host, Fatty, and uh, today with me, I have a very special guest. Uh, Mr. Bovley Koss is with me today. Bovley is a, a spiritual care practitioner and a registered psychotherapist as well, and I'm super excited to have him on to really just unpack that. Uh, just a bit of a background, I've met Bovley um, I think we met up quite some time ago, probably through basketball. Bubbly's uh, from the East End, uh, and I'm from uh, more West End. So obviously, we we technically always meet through sports somehow. He's a longtime friend of my brother-in-law's as well. And without further ado, Mr. Bubbly Cost, how are you, man? I'm good, Fatty. How are you? I'm doing well, doing well. Thanks so much for joining the show. I really appreciate it, man. Yeah, thank you for having me, man. I'm excited to be here. I'm really loving what you're doing with this, so thank you for having me. Oh, I, I appreciate that. And um, just uh, just before we get into the whole, you know, everything that you do, how was your quarantine? What have you been up to? Yeah, my quarantine has been interesting. I, uh, for the most part, I've been working in the hospital since it started. So uh, actually, my hours has inc- have increased in the hospital. So I've been pretty much between work and home. Um, no social life, really. It's only in like the last month I started to go out more to more patios and uh, things like that when they started to open up. But yeah, I've been I've been working. I've been working a lot, actually. That's been pretty much my quarantine. And yeah, having having worked in a hospital, like can you talk to us about the the transition? Like, what was that like? I guess back in March when when COVID really started to to pick up, what was the transition like? Yeah, no, the transition was um, it was interesting because so early on um, when when everything broke out, I think there was a lot of uncertainty, uh, especially with healthcare workers. You know, everyone kind of imagines that we all we know everything, but there was a lot of uncertainty when it broke out, and really, what are we dealing with here, and what is happening? And for those first couple of weeks, everyone was kind of in the unknown. But, you know, we had great leadership from our senior leadership team. And kind of as things went on, um, uh, things just kind of improved because we were practicing everything the way that we were told to practice. And not a whole lot of staff got sick or got the infection. So, um, you know, those first couple of weeks, the last two weeks in March were really very much uncertain. But, you know, starting like the first week in April, things kind of went back to normal with hospital life. I want to just shout out everyone who had to work and I guess frontline employees, which includes pharmacists as well, because I know my uh, my mom's had some run ins with that and she gets a bit upset. So shout out to everyone that had to work in the pharmacist. And I know it's all hands on deck in times like that. And you have to in your case, I guess you also have to worry about the mental health with the people that you're dealing with, uh, aside from your own, I guess, too. Right. Yeah, no. I would say uh, I, uh, I I agree with that, especially so my role even changed a bit, not changed, but I guess one aspect of my role that really increased uh, during that time is supporting our staff members with, you know, psychological uh, support, counseling and therapy as well. So not only do we support the patients and the families, but also staff support really increased during this difficult time. And, um, you know, everyone has different situations, right? A lot of these frontline workers in the hospital or wherever in the community have families. So a lot of them were very much afraid and scared if they were to catch the virus and bring it home and spread it to their kids and their families. And so a lot of that anxiety was something that, you know, myself and our departments kind of took on uh, to support the staff members. Shout out to you guys. And that's a great initiative. And honestly, it's uh, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of um, commitment to be able to to do that in that time as well and make all those sacrifices personally. 
but uh let's uh let's just get right into it what are you what are you doing right now can you tell us about that yeah so like as you said at the beginning you know um uh kind of what i do like i'm a spiritual care practitioner and kind of a registered psychotherapist essentially what that is is i provide uh, people in the hospital support who have spiritual crises or um kind of existential crises when they come into the hospital right so you have people who come in and say are have a new uh, uh, cancer diagnosis or who have had a heart attack or you know have been have had a traumatic event like being hit by a car or you know um have had a stroke has suffered a stroke and things like that and when they come into the hospital you know your life trajectory changes if like you and I are on the younger side of life i don't think we think about death a whole lot uh, a whole lot because of how young we are but you have a lot of these people who are coming in and they're made to be faced with their mortality and their whole mind and perspective changes so we're meeting them at that point when they ask well what does this mean am i going to die well what does death look like right and that's kind of that group of people we support we also support people who have mental health um who are dealing with mental health crises right whether it's depression schizophrenia or bipolar right and we provide counseling for them as well so you know, there's a range of people that we are supporting in the hospital setting i'm excited to to unpack that a lot and uh i want to i want to talk about the mental health thing a little later as well because i think that's a pretty big thing in our culture um it's starting to to gain some traction more so now but historically has not really been uh, i guess recognized within the culture but we can we can unpack that a little bit later. Um, I want to I want to rewind a little bit and go back to the I guess the the beginning of the path to end up where you are now. So what did you do in school? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think, um, uh, you know, it's a long story, but I'll try to you know keep it concise. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm excited. Yeah, no, it's uh, no, it's very interesting. I'm sure I can write a book about it. But uh, what for me, it was, um, you know, I grew up, uh, you know, going growing up in the Coptic community. You know, you're pretty much told that, you know, you have to be a doctor, pharmacist or engineer. And that's not to say that those professions are bad in any way. Right. It it makes sense. And I'm actually quite thankful for our community for pushing us in that direction, because it shows that they value those professions, not just from a financial perspective, the kind of money you're making, but from kind of the impact and the, the ability they have to support our society as a whole. But for me, that never really clicked. I was never good at math or science. I, I was really horrible. Like I stopped taking science after grade ten because that was the requirement. Preach, brother. Preach. Yeah, exactly. And I almost like I I wanted to force myself to do it just to you know see and explore yeah. the option, but I, I just could not do it. It was like it didn't stick. But again, I wasn't the greatest student, and I'm sure that if I tried more, but it just did not interest me. At yeah, all. no, exactly. I I totally hear you. I was the same way. So I, and I did. I personally did push myself and I, I like I failed grade 10 math I failed grade 10 math in high school so that's that was kind of my low point in my high school life and I realized okay I gotta I gotta yo grade 10 math is tough bro grade 10 math is tough I'm not gonna lie yeah no it was it, honestly <laughs> it, it wasn't easy and I had another good friend of mine in in my class um from church and he uh he passed it I didn't but it was that was really my low point where I was like, okay, I gotta I gotta figure something else here because clearly math and science ain't gonna do it for me. Uh, so I was always good at the arts, you know, like history and geography. Those were always my thing. What was uh, what were your interests, I guess, or what 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 was more 
the first interest or your first love, I guess. In regards, between, like, to my with, in the arts. Oh, the arts. Between, oh, like, the history. History? Yeah, oh, absolutely, history. And I think, like, I, one of my uncles, he, um, he, uh, he studied history, and he always kind of spoke to me and kind of instilled that in me if I were to reflect back on my life. Egyptian history, ancient history. I was always into that Greek history, uh, the Chinese, uh, Mesopotamia. You know, so my first love was kind of ancient history. Um, and I realized I was good at it. Like, you know, and I, I never had to do things twice. I was reading a book and I got it. And I was on the same par as my peers. And I was like, okay, maybe something's happening here. Uh, and I had good teachers too. And that's kind of what pushed me into university where I applied for um, a history undergrad. I didn't know what I was going to do with it, but I was like, I love history. I'm going to pursue this. And that's when I pushed into, um, uh, I, I applied, I got into York. And can I, can I ask you quickly, just what that was like having the discussion with your parents to say, mama, baba, I'm going to, I'm going to do a history undergrad. Like what was their, what was their reaction to that? Were they supportive of that? Were they on the side of like, you, know, you got to do something more sciencey? Like what was that process like? Yeah. You know, it's, uh, that was uh, that was interesting. Reflecting back on reflecting back on that, I think uh, there was a lot of anxiety and stress for me, kind of in anticipation of what how they would respond back to me. I think the one thing that stuck with me was, "What are you going to do with this?" And when I told them what I wanted to do with it, potentially maybe um, you know be a teacher or you know become a lawyer. Uh, I think I wanted to be a lawyer back then or pursue law. And I think when they saw that I had a plan and I was very clear with them, they were very accepting of it. I think they were hesitant, hesitant because, again, this isn't something that they're used to. But uh, they were open to it. And, you know, they kind of I think they trusted me. Um, and I was the eldest child. So as the eldest child, it's almost like everything's an experiment. So I think the parents were thinking, OK, let's see where this goes. Yeah, and I'm I'm an eldest child too. Yeah, and uh, I I struggled a little bit. I I paved the way. I tell my sister all the time, I paved the way for you. <laughs> I, I I I they took it all out on me, and then by the time you were coming up, it was like oh, already we've already seen it. So it's uh it's nothing new to us here. Yeah, yeah, no, that's what I tell my sister too, and you know she kind of smirks at me and just walks away. But uh, but yeah. <laughs> So, uh, so let's, uh, let's continue talking. So right now we're at, uh, you're going to York, uh, you're doing history. I believe that was, that was where we were at before I interrupted you so rudely. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Yeah. So, uh, talk to us about that. So you, you went to York and then what happened there? Yeah, I, uh, I, um, so I went in, uh, for history and then, um, I had a good friend of mine, uh, tell, uh, asked me to explore, teacher's college so i applied that year for the concurrent program and i got into that and, um, and then in my second year as part of a requirement to complete my degree um, i had to take a humanities course so i took a course called christianity in context right so growing up in the church i was you know a good old uh, sunday school attendee never missed sunday school and whatever so i thought oh you know bird course here We'll take this. We'll get an A, and uh, you know life will be good. And yeah, fasting and prayer—that's the answer, bro. Like, fasting, prayer. I—I I know the four, the name of the four gospel writers. Uh, you're done. You're—you're you're already ahead of the game. Yeah, honest to goodness, that was my thought. This was second year, so I was 19 at the time, right? Like you know, 
if you reflect back on your university years, you know, you're, you're on top of the world. Nothing can take you down. Oh, yeah. And uh, so I took, I took the course. And honest to goodness, I had another good friend of mine in the course, and he can vouch for this. Like three, four weeks into the course, we, like I, I pretty much lost my faith. I pretty much lost my faith. I had gone into the form of atheism, agnosticism because of that course. And what, what triggered that? Like what happened in the two weeks? It was the way that the, so it's the way that you study religion in 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 university, right? It's uh, the academia and how they approach it. It's very different from Sunday school, right? So you're sitting in the class and you're not you're not thinking to yourself, oh, you know, Saint Mark wrote his gospel. You know, they're saying there's a community around this figure called Mark, and they wrote his gospel, and things like that. And you know, things are, you know, when they're talking about allegory. You know, I, I was brought up and brought up in the Coptic Church for the most part to think everything is literal. You know, I'm thinking mm-hmm. Adam and yes, Eve actually yeah. did exist, right? And so I'm sitting in this class saying, "Oh, Adam and Eve didn't exist, but they're the personification of this idea of what how the human race started." I was like, "Well, that's not true. That's not what I've been taught in church. How can that be? You're telling me Adam and Eve are not real?" And so things like that, you know every week started to pile up for me and then I blew up and I was like, okay, something's not right here. I had looking back at it. I had my moment in life where I would call it the crisis of faith. I, I, I questioned my faith and I was struggling with it because of this course, but I loved it. I loved the content and the things that I was learning. So how was like, what was your reaction to that at first? Like as a, as a 19 year old Coptic guy who you know you grew up in the church you went to sunday school you went on all the convention trips and played in all the church leagues and you know did everything in church and all your boys are from church like what was that feeling like well i'm sure you didn't take it publicly at first you're like guys like i'm 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 questioning my faith like i'm sure at first you were like something is going on like what was that reaction like and what was that feeling like or discussion that you had with you with yourself there's i would say a lot of fear a lot of fear uh, with uh, everything that was happening. I think the first time I actually started talking to my friends about it was maybe a year after that course because I didn't know what to do with it because I was afraid. How can, um, especially with what I, kind of the position I had growing up at St. George, being a servant and teaching other kids, how can someone like me um, be going through this? This is not this is not the right way. Um so it took me about a year to actually start talking about my friends and uh, about it. So that was kind of where I was at. So there was a lot of fear, but I continued to push through. And um, it took me about a year. And then I realized all my friends were in the same position. All my friends in pharmacy and medical school and whatever, they also had their crisis of faith with different experiences. And, um, you know, we kind of came together and we actually encouraged uh, encouraged uh, each other to continue to read and to reflect and to think about what's happening here and how we can continue to grow yeah so can you can you actually expand a little bit on what the crisis of faith is that like something that would you say that's normal like for someone who's listening to the podcast who says yo i've i've kind of had that myself like i remember a time where i sort of felt like that or is that a normal feeling is that can you talk about that a little bit yeah no it is i would say uh, I think a crisis of faith is normal for everyone. And, you know, you, you, the popular term that you hear in our society today is like a midlife crisis, right? So a crisis of yeah. faith. So, yeah. So a crisis of faith is pretty much, you know, someone who um, uh, who's having an existential crisis with what they've been brought up to believe. Right. You don't necessarily just have to be a Christian. Right. You can be anything. You can even if you believe in nothing. have What I would call a crisis of faith where you're questioning everything that you've ever been taught. 
essentially what's happening there is that there's a break between kind of the baby faith that you've been taught and kind of transitioning into an adult faith. So if you have a healthy transition of a crisis of faith, you're essentially letting go of the childlike faith you've been taught and transitioning that into more of an adult faith. And for me, that's what happened, because what ended up happening was I read books, started to intellectualize and rationalize my faith, and I slowly found my way back into the church. Okay. Well, that's great. We're, we're happy to have you, honestly. <laughs> and uh, and I think it's important for a lot of people to hear um, to hear your story like that, especially like not many people are comfortable sharing kind of that kind of stuff, right? Like not many people um, walk around and you know, are comfortable enough to say that, you know, this was a time in my life that I had, but for them to hear it and to hear that, you know, this is not that abnormal. It happens. Or a lot of people go through it. It's, uh, it's definitely good for people to hear. So, um, let's continue the path of education. So you're applying to teacher's college, you said, or you're in teacher's college. Uh, I think you were taking the course and then what happened? In my second year, I applied and I got in. And then, um, yes, yeah, so I was taking at the same time taking that course, Christianity in Context. And I really loved the study of religion and philosophy. So I continued to take a few more courses. And then I ended up double majoring in history and religious studies at York. And I really, really loved it. Uh, I finished my degree uh, in 2012. And there's no jobs in teaching, but I love teach. I love uh, learning about religions and philosophy and just studying theology. And so a lot of the books I was reading at the time were coming out from this school uh, in New York called St. Vladimir's. And they had a program, uh, a master's in the arts and theology. It was a pure academic program just to learn about theology. They had a great scholarship program. And, you know, I, I was very fortunate at a time when I was applying that the American dollar was one to one with the Canadian so it was very affordable, and uh, I pursued that. Oh, the, the good old days. Good old days. Yeah, that was back in 20 – when did I start? 2012. 2012. Yeah. Like right when I – Where in New York were you? Uh, I, I was just north of the Bronx, so just north a little oh, north okay, of okay. New York City. So I was pretty much in the suburbs of New York City. Okay. Yeah. How was that? It, uh, it, it was amazing. I, I Honestly, to this day, I still – I miss my time, those two years there. Uh, the school experience was amazing. The the people I went to school with were amazing. The teachers were great. Um, my I, my dad's side of the family lived right across the Hudson River, so I'd always visit them like every other weekend and spend time with them. Uh, and they had they had a dog they had a dog too that drove me nuts, but you know love him. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, no, it was a great time. I actually it was probably for my education career that was the best time that was my best experience it really shaped me and molded me to the person that i am today i would say was that the first time you had moved out of the house as well it was yeah it was okay, okay. it was that was that was interesting yeah absolutely talk about that a little bit that was interesting so i i, I did get homesick um but funny enough uh in when when was it i think october or november so i had gotten there early september so I forget if it was October or November, and there was a tornado that was coming in New York. Now, living in Toronto, you never – I mean, I've never seen a tornado in Toronto. Uh, so they shut down the school for the week, and I was like, well, can I go back home and come back? They're like, yeah, if you can get like a flight out of here or whatever and just come back in a week. And so I did, and I came home for a week, and you know, I was like, oh, home's the same. Nothing's really changed. 
Yeah. yeah. Released different and came back and that was it. It was good. I was I was good after that. Yeah, he, he, all you needed was one trip back home where your parents told you to do a million things, and you're like, "Yeah, nah, I'm gonna stay here <laughs> a bit longer." No, exactly, and that—that's exactly what happened. I came back, you know. Parents uh, tell me what to do. Friends really haven't changed; they're the same old. You know, I love them to pieces, but you know, I was like, "Oh, I really wasn't homesick. I was just, you know, what's uh, fear of missing out?" That's what it was. FOMO. Yeah. The the infamous FOMO. Yeah. Cool. So uh, so you go to you go to Saint Vladimir. So what is uh, I think uh, it's a seminary, right? Can you explain what a seminary is? A seminary is a place where um, most Christian denominations, whether you're Catholic, Orthodox, or Protestant, no matter where you come from, is a place where you go if you want to become a priest, where they train you. So you are being taught. Um, just like a doctor goes to med school, an engineer goes to engineering school, a pharmacist goes to a pharmacist school, you're, you go to a seminary. That's what you would do if you want to become a priest. And you need to do a master's of what they call a master's of divinity, which is a three-year program. I, I didn't do that. I, I never sought ordination or ever thought of being ordained, I, uh, and I still don't. Uh, but I, I did the academic stream, uh, what they would call the Master of the Arts, which was a two-year degree, and just it's just a pure s- academic study of theology. And I did that for two years. So um, the good thing about seminaries now is that they just don't train priests, but you can go there for the academics, right? You're- See, yeah, thanks for clearing that up, because honestly, I, I don't know if this applies to everybody, but for me personally, I always associated it with priesthood. Like, when I hear seminary, I automatically think you're going to become a priest a lot of people think that but that's not the case at all yeah that's not the case at all they have many different programs i mean if you look at you uh, university of toronto uh like if you look at just the programs they offer like they have different counseling programs now that they offer under the umbrella of the seminary and it, that, that doesn't prepare you for priesthood but it prepares you for other things and that's so the seminary now and i think that's just more of a kind of an economic thing you know, they're trying to stay relevant and try to keep cash flow coming in. So they're expanding their their studies and trying to lure in different people, which I think is smart. But no, you don't you don't have to go to like the association of a seminary with you becoming an ordained priest now is starting to change. You don't have to necessarily go just to become a priest. You can go and just study. OK, yeah. Yeah. So what what was your master's in then? What was the program title? It was a master's of the arts in theology. And okay. it was, yeah, it was a two-year program. Honestly, it was the best two years of my life. The, the the professors I had there really challenged me. And that's when I first found out about spiritual care. I first found out about it. I couldn't really pursue it at the time because I knew I was coming back to Toronto. So had I started up in New York and then I didn't know how it would have been to transition back because no one really helped me. Yeah. So yeah. I just... Well, and that's, the, and that's that's kind of... um. Like when when you and I were talking before even getting you on the pod, I was like thinking to myself, I'm like, you know, I don't really know many Coptic people in this space. And a lot of times, you know, people in the Coptic community, they'll go to a program or go through something before us. So we'll have, you know, a foundation like we'll have a, a blueprint, essentially people to help us to help us with the transition back with when you come back, you know, like I'm sure there was someone who. You know, the first round of people who did pharmacy in the States and they came back and the first round of people that did it in the UK or, or you know, stuff like that. So it's you talk on that. And honestly, I was thinking about that, too. It is it might must be tough for you to like you're almost here by yourself in this space. Right. Exactly. I had no one. Me. I actually found one person. His name is Hedra. 
who who was in the space and when I came when I moved back to Toronto he helped transition me uh, trans, uh transition me into it so I'm really thankful for him and he, his help was immense but outside of that I had no help I really I was really um a lone lone ranger uh, trying to figure out the space and what this means and how this will look like and uh that was very difficult but once I you know I got a good grasp on it then you know everything kind of moved very smoothly after that Okay. And uh, from the seminary from St. Vladimir's, you get the master's. Where does psychotherapy come in? I want to know more about that. So after the seminary, I came back to Toronto and I wanted to pursue spiritual care and chaplaincy in the hospital. So I started what they would uh, call uh, doing my units, my clinical units in the hospital. So the degree that I had was enough. My master's degree was enough to get me to get my foot in. So I applied, and actually my first clinical training unit was at Sunnybrook Hospital. That was in 20, September 2014 to March 2015. I did it on a part-time basis. And um, again, I was fortunate enough that after that, I ended up getting a part-time job afterwards in Sunnybrook. You can work after one practical unit. And uh, and then I got a uh, a part-time job as well in Scarborough. And then I continue to doing my practicum, my my clinical units. I need four units to be a certified spiritual care practitioner, uh, which I've completed right now. But in between that, I um, working in uh, working in um, working in Scarborough. The manager there had told me that you know maybe I should pursue uh, a psychotherapy degree because it will help with the job, and also it was required to be reg- a registered psychotherapist to work in Scarborough. So I looked at I looked at the program at UFT. UFT had a program which was just starting up, and uh, honestly, I was blessed because it was kind of a, a, a mixture of religion and counseling um, courses that they were offering. And I got lucky because they accredited me for all my religion courses for my first masters. And okay. yeah, so essentially I was work I was doing it part time and just taking the counseling program. I didn't even need to do the practicums in the program because I had already done them in the hospital separately. So I was really blessed. I pretty much had to do I think twelve courses in counseling. And so I got the degree I got the degree in that. Um and um and that was kind of the motivation was I want to have that psychotherapy background because it really goes hand in hand with the spirituality. Especially when you think of people in the church. People in the church uh, are always going to priests or whoever um, uh, about their spiritual issues. But a lot of the things that people deal with day in and day out, there's a lot of counseling and psychotherapy that's needed. And I think a lot of the things, and not to undercut priests in any way, um, I think they all have their gifts. But I think there's a lot of things that we as a community can pool our strengths together and help these people. Right? We, I think we are living in a community we've made, where we've made the priests to everything, if you think about it. So we have a priest who's also your financial advisor, who's also your father of confession, who's also yeah. Your I was just gonna bring that up. <laughs> you know, so I was just gonna bring that up. Like I feel like what you're asking for is is a whole shift in culture. I f- just feel like it's tough to get people to switch that, and I think it's very important because our generation is different. Our generation challenges things more. You know, they tr- they want to understand things more. Mm-hmm. Um, they ask a lot of questions. They're curious. So at the end of the day, it's going to shift eventually. But I don't know if if like the older generation, like it seems like it, it's, it's a far cry. I don't know. What do you think? 
I, I really hope so. I mean, with what I'm trying to do, uh, I'm, I'm really trying to, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, lately what's been happening with me is a lot of people think that um, I'm trying to push people away from the church. Quite the opposite, actually. I'm actually trying, if I'm being honest with you, uh, I'm trying to save the church. Because I look at the church and I look at the development and how it's developing. I see a lot of things that we are doing today that say the Russians or the Greeks did in the early 1900s or the Irish, the Catholic and Protestant Irish who came in. And essentially what happened there is you had three generations of them coming in and then all of a sudden everyone stops going to church. And we're three generations in right now. Um, the first cops came here to Canada in the mid 60s, right? Early to mid 60s. That's almost a little more than three generations. And I think a lot of people, a lot of people are, are getting to a point where they're fed up with the church and they're leaving. And I'm trying to show them that I was like, no, if we do things a little different, the church can still remain relevant and vibrant. Yeah. And I recently wrote an article, just as a quick example, I wrote an article on the the role of women leadership in the church. Essentially, all I'm saying is that if women take up leadership roles, then the church will be more vibrant. People interpret that as, nope, you know, he's trying to cancel the whole system that we have. And, you know, he's trying to say that women um, need to be in these leadership roles because they can do it better than men. And I'm like, that's not what I said at all. All I'm saying is that if they have leadership roles along the men, then a lot of the issues that, say, women are dealing with will be actually be able to be addressed and to be taken care of in a very sensitive manner. Yeah, and that's that's a huge uh, that's a huge topic and discussion. Honestly, I wasn't sure if uh, if you were going to bring it up. I was going to ask, and then I was like, I don't know if I'm going to ask, but I'm glad you brought it up because I think it's uh, it's an important discussion to have. And you know, like I said before, like we just challenge, we challenge things, and a lot of people don't like challenges, and a lot of people don't like to be asked questions. And a lot of people don't like change from our culture. So that's uh, it, it can be a recipe for for that kind of reaction, honestly. Yeah, exactly. And I think, yeah, challenge challenge is a good word, you know, to, you know, you, you have a you have a, a business and marketing background. Right. So you're 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 in a field where you're always asking questions where you can continue to improve. You're never really you're never really stuck in one thing forever and say, oh, it's always going to work. Right. You're always asking questions of how can I make this better? How can I change this? How can I change that? And the church is no different. I'm not asking to to wipe away all the traditions that have come down to us. But I'm saying how can when you look at the early church, for example, and the development that it had, you know, the classic example is when you look at uh, St. Paul in in the gospel and when he went to preach to the Greeks, he said to them, I preached to you. And he pointed out a plaque that they had where it says, I preached to this unknown God that you write about. He was able to go into a society, take what they understood, and help them move that. And that's what the church is. A church goes into a certain society and a culture, understands and learns what's happening, and then is able to take that and make it beautiful and bring it back to the people. It's a it's a good way to, to definitely explain it and, and to show the value in it as well. I want to know, though, how you ended up in your current position. So how did you end up doing what you do now? That's a good question. I So right after New York, I came back and then I did my first clinical training, as I mentioned, uh, in Sunnybrook. And then my manager, supervisor there, was kind enough to give me a part-time position. And in the East End, there was a position, another part-time position that opened up in Scarborough. And then I was able to land another part-time position. And uh, and then during that time, that's when I went again back to UFT to pursue that master's. And in between, I was also doing my clinical training to get my four units that I need to be a certified uh, spiritual care practitioner and a registered psychotherapist. 
Uh, and currently what happened about three years ago, the Scarborough hospitals, all the Scarborough hospitals amalgamated together as one hospital unit. Uh, the big thing in healthcare now is hospitals amalgamating together to try and cut costs with senior leadership. So we have three three hospitals in Scarborough that amalgamated together, now known as the Scarborough Health Network. And so I've always been in Scarborough, and um, I always joke with people and I say I was able to survive the amalgamation because unfortunately a lot of job cuts always happen. They liked me enough, you know, they liked my personality and the work I did that, you know, they kept me around. And um, I've been in Scarborough ever since, so I've been there I've been there for over five years. Sunnybrook got a little too much for me because it was kind of overnight work as well. So, Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I cut that out a little bit. Like I pick up here and there whenever they need, like really need help. But it's been uh, maybe about a year, year and a half where I really cut it out because it was just getting too much for me. But I'm permanently like full time in Scarborough. So what's your uh, what's your day in the life? Like what what? I don't know if every day is so drastically different, but what what's your day in the life at work? What do you do on the job? So I would start out by saying, and a lot of Coptic people, if you're listening, you will enjoy this. My day is a mystery. <laughs> it's pretty much a mystery. So I go in. I'll tell you, like, I'll try to paint you kind of a, a generic picture. But it's pretty much a mystery. So I go in. I print out my hospital list of patients and um, kind of figure out who I need to visit and don't need to visit. So a lot of my visits tend to be follow-ups. So people who are patients there who are long-term. And then I'll go to the clinical rounds. So clinical rounds, essentially, you have the doctors there, the nurses there, and everyone part of the team there. And you get the information on the patient, right? So the social workers are there, physiotherapists, the pharmacists, uh, um, occupational therapists, everyone who is connected to the work of the patient attend rounds. And that's when I usually get a lot of new cases where people are referring to me. Social worker would come up to me. Uh, and say, oh, you know, this person's a little bit depressed. Can you go and support them? You know, oh, this person, um, they just became palliative. You know, they have less than three months to, to live. Can you go see them? And that usually happens um, right up until lunchtime. And then in between all that, I'm going and seeing people. When I say mystery, a lot of things happen in between all that. So, for example, uh, if there's something what they call a code blue, a code blue is when someone is having a cardiac arrest. Uh, I am part of the code blue team. The code blue team is people who respond from medical, but as well as from a social perspective. So myself being a spiritual care practitioner and the social worker would respond to a code blue. And in that situation, we would support family members if they are present. Okay. Right. Uh, we also respond to code pinks sometimes in the hospital. A code pink is the same as a code blue, but this is for a child. So any child under the age of 16 having either a cardiac arrest or something is happening to them, they would call a code pink. And I would also respond in those situations and support family members if they are present. Um, and so my day is kind of all over the place in that in that way. And that's what I mean by mystery. Yeah. No, and uh, I actually want to know a little bit about, like, uh, what that's like on you personally. Like, that seems like you're supporting people who are in pretty rough conditions. Like, what's that like for you? How is that like on your mental health? I catch people exactly. I tell people I, I really catch them at their most vulnerable and at their lowest point in their life. Um, initially, like you could talk to a lot of my friends initially, I had, I had very poor, poor coping mechanisms because even with the training that I went through, I don't think they really stress the idea of kind of supporting yourself. People who work in healthcare are people who are constantly, constantly, constantly giving. They are emptying themselves out 110%. 
But when it comes to taking taking care of themselves, they're not that great. And I would fall into that category where I always found myself coping in ways that are not healthy, whether it's, you know, sometimes I drink or sometimes I I do things that are not good on the body. Um, I found that I wasn't doing well. And, you know, I have a good friend group that they would call that out. And I've gotten a lot better, I would say, in coping with it. But the one thing that really has helped me is just distancing myself. Just once I leave work, that's it. It's over. I'll go play basketball, um, you know, go go for walks, um, you know, go to a movie, hang out with friends. That's not, that feels like that feels like it takes some years of experience to get to, though, because it's like, man, like if I have certain discussions during the day or like I meet with someone and like I'm sure in your in your instance, like you build up some sort of bond or relationship with the people that you deal with. Right. It's not you're not there to have a surface discussion. Right. Yeah. And it's especially with my friends, it was hard. I, I would say the difficult part of my coping was with my friends because I got to a point where I was able to distance kind of the conversations in the hospital outside of my personal life. But then I had found friends when I would meet up with them after they would talk to me. And then I had I would have to catch myself and say, hey, what am I doing here? Um, I f- don't feel more like a friend now. I feel like I'm at work. And that was a difficult that was a difficult place to be in and to navigate because friends are obviously they're more open to you. So it's a lot more sensitive, right? So how do you, how do you kind of engage in that and, and how do you deal with that? So I had to really take a step back from that. That was, that was probably the most difficult learning curve for me. Not that I would never be there for my friends. I absolutely would be, but when it happened on a daily basis, that really did, was not good for me. Yeah. And, uh, I like the fact that you said the, the stress on like taking care of your own mental health and I want to just, um, really just talk about what that means within like the Coptic church, like, or Coptic culture rather, not the Coptic church. I don't want to get into church discussions, but just within the, the culture itself, like what is the stigma around mental health? Have you seen, I guess, in what you do, have you seen the Coptic stigma around mental health? Can you talk about that a little bit? I have a little bit of experience with it. I think that mental I think we've we've gotten better in the Coptic community of identifying mental health and learning to deal with it and supporting people in a way that is getting them the best help that they can get. But I think ultimately there is a stigma around mental health. Um, I, I think I think ultimately where the stigma lies is in the upbringing of the people within the church. And what I mean by that is now, now you have a community. And again, I'm not trying to make, you know, I'm, I'm making a joke, but it, it means nothing. But like when I'm going to a church now, I am literally walking into a dealership, a high end dealership, if you think about it. <laughs> right. You know, you're seeing your BMWs and your Benzes and your Teslas. And we, we've gotten so caught up as a community of taking care of ourselves that I think we've forgotten that there's other people we need to take care of. When you look at Christ and when you look at kind of the mission that he had, he went to the most vulnerable. He never went to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were well off. He went to the woman who was caught in adultery and asked for help. He went to the woman who was bleeding for 12 years and helped her. He went to the woman at the well and helped her, right? To the point where she called him out and said, well, you're not supposed to be talking to me. You're a male, first of all. And second, you're a Jew. Jews don't communicate with Samaritans. And I think if we take that paradigm and apply it to mental health, we can definitely be doing a better job. I think a lot of people in our community are being forgotten and being put to the wayside because uh, our leadership doesn't have proper education around mental health. And what do you think? Um, 
what benefits can can that do if if like from the top down we we implement things to work on mental health like what can what are some changes that you can foresee happening with that I think immediately what could happen is you can you can hire um, therapists and counselors, uh, not hire, but like make them available. Right. So if someone, uh, you know, um, in the tradition that we belong to in the Coptic Church, it's still very much heavily relied upon the priests. So a lot of the priests would be the ones getting this information. And I think what needs to happen is once this is um, made known to a priest, the priest should be able to have access to a counselor and say, okay, here, here's this person, call them, and they will help you out right away, right? And it, it's kind of like, so if, you, so if you think of work, so for example, at the hospital where I work, I'll give you an example. We have something called EAP support. So um, as an employee in the hospital, if I am, say, let's say I'm going through a divorce or I'm just going through a rough time, I can call EAP and be like, okay, here's the situation. I might need a lawyer. I might need a therapist. I might need that. And right away, they will take you to someone who will help you. And I think if the church is set up in that way, if someone comes and says, well, I need mental health support, I need financial support, I need this, I need that, then the priest should have access to kind of a list of people who, when they utilize the resources, can give them a small, a small stipend, a small monetary amount, and to help these people. And I think that system would honestly help propel us um, a great deal. I think eventually with uh, with the way that things are happening right now within the culture and, you know, I'm sure everyone knows and seeing things that are happening on Instagram of, of all the different things that are coming out now and the church is going to eventually make a change and maybe head in that direction. Who knows? But I think, um, like I said, I think the youth of the church now, the younger generation is the challenger, the, the, um, the want to learn more generation. So I think... Um, I think we'll come up with something hopefully that'll benefit everybody. Uh, talk about talk about like being a Coptic guy in this space though, because obviously other than the one person that you know, you don't really know many people. Um, and obviously again, mixed with the the stigma around mental health, it could be a bit challenging. Have you had any difficulty talking about what you do with people from the culture, or explaining what you do, or um, has it generally been more accepting? I would say just from the outset, I am, I am an outlier. I am an outlier in the community because this is not something that anyone ever thinks about pursuing or wanting to pursue. Uh, so it has been difficult communicating with people and trying to explain to them what I do because it's never really presented as an option for people in our community to pursue. The first question I get asked is how much do you make? You know, are you able to like afford uh, a place? That's the first question you're asked? I mean, it's it goes without without a doubt. Well, that's a that's a very direct first question. Like, she take me to dinner first. <laughs> well, yeah. So my yeah, my comical response is, you can take me to dinner and you can pay for it. Yeah, that I'll tell you. <laughs> so okay, yeah. Sorry, carry so, on. So no, it's uh, it's it's oh, it's been it's been very difficult in that way. And honestly, a lot of people in the community see me as a threat. And I don't know why. A lot of people might think I'm trying to push for something radical or some sort of change with what I do, but that's not the case. You're an extremist. Yeah, I get that. I get that a lot. I really do. I really do. And, you know, I'm like, I'm here trying to help people. I'm, this is the whole point, right? So a lot of the things that I get uh, from the community uh, within our community is usually along the lines of, well, you know, you're anti-tradition because, well, first of all, you went to a profession that doesn't follow what we want our community members to be a part of. 
and the fact that you're still part of the church but seem to be saying things that are not making sense. So, you know, what is it that you're doing here? Oh, okay, you must be a threat to us then. Wait, wait, I want to rewind to the first thing that you said. What do you mean by the education that is not uh, followed by the Coptic church? Can Can you expand on that a bit? Like I'm not, they don't, I'm not, I didn't follow the kind of the traditional education stream of like whether. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. I thought, I thought like the church doesn't allow like spiritual practitioners. I was like, what? No, no, no. I meant like I didn't follow that. Gotcha. Got you. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. The blueprint. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, That was a good album, by the way. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so that's, that's kind of been my, um kind of been my struggle but honestly as as we're recording this i can actually now maybe using two hands count off the amount of people who are wanting to pursue this type of career uh the amount of i've had yeah the amount of people i've had reach out to me during the the uh pandemic telling me oh i'm in the counseling program at tyndale oh i want to apply um to the program in laurier which is the equivalent program to uft the one i did uh, oh, I'm uh, I'm studying at UFT. Oh, I uh, I'm going to um, and they're naming all these schools that have counseling programs. I I've actually been I've been I've been taken aback, and I mean I've been supporting them in every step of the way, uh, and being very honest and being very open with them. So I think it's yeah, starting yeah. to you know kind of to, to 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 go back to what you were saying. It's starting to open up. I think a lot of the younger people are starting to challenge. Uh, and I think this is the one of the ways it's growing. So I'm, I'm, I'm very happy, very, very happy. And most importantly, I would say 90% of the people reaching out to me are females. Really? Yeah. So everyone who's been reaching out to me has been, uh, is a girl in, in the community, uh, who's pursuing this program. And that honestly makes me, um, just like, it makes me so happy to see that because this will allow them, I think, an avenue to be in leadership roles when it comes to this, right? To actually yeah, help yeah. people at the forefront when it comes to let's have a mental health discussion. Let's have a discussion about vulnerability and shame and all these things. That's uh, that's actually amazing, man. And I'm happy to see that it's heading into into that direction. I like the fact that people are, I don't want to say challenging because I feel like I've said that a hundred times on this episode, but I feel like I, I like that people are going against the status quo um, that are, you know, people are going after something that they are passionate about, that they love and care about. And um, that's what it's all about, man. If you just follow your passion, you do what you're passionate about. Everyone will tell you you're not working a day in your life. So as long as you pursue what your passion is and, and go all out at it, it's gonna be great. And uh Bubbly, before I uh before I let you go, I just have one last question for you, man. I wanna know, um, did you have a mentor growing up? Like is there somebody that you looked up to that is the reason why you ended up doing what you do now? Uh, that's a tough one. I I've had mentors from all different um from all different sides uh of, of my life. I would say from like a basketball perspective, because I love basketball, I would say Kobe's really had a big impact on me. Um, you know, just that Mamba mentality of never giving up and always pushing and striving. So he taught me that if I need to, if someone is reading one book to understand the theory, I read two. Um, so that was, he, he really had a big impact on me, but from an actual theological, uh, from like the theological world that I'm embraced in, uh, I would say two figures really stand out and I would highly recommend people to read their books. Um, the first one would be, Father Alexander Schmemann, and the second one would be Father Matthew Depoor. Father Matthew Depoor was actually a Coptic monk. Uh, Father Alexander Schmemann is a Russian priest, a Russian Orthodox priest, and they both really had huge, huge impact on me. I started reading their books 
to the point where I was like, there's no way these two men are priests. There's absolutely no way. It made no sense. And I had to reread. Why not? Just the things they were saying. It was, it it really was, um, uh, it did not go with what I was taught in the church growing up. Um, You know, someone, I'll give you an example, like uh, Father Alexander Schmemann would say, you know, uh, the Eucharist is not just what you take in the church, but the Eucharist is what you eat on a daily basis. So if you're not being, um, if you're not living a Eucharistic life, then you fail to take the Eucharist every Sunday morning. I'm summarizing him. Obviously, that's not verbatim, but something along those lines. So things like that challenged me. I was like, well, what does he mean? Right. The Eucharist communion is only on Sunday. What is he talking about? This thing being outside of the church. And that was my beginning stages of coming back into the church and reading and understanding that and uh, struggling with it and growing with it and um, just kind of going through all that. So I, those are the two people I would say uh, early on who had a big impact on me. I mean, there's so many more, but those were the first two that really uh, impacted me and really um, challenged me uh, to grow, to learn and to be honest. Bubbly man, it's been an absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure to have you on here. I'm uh, super glad we, we were able to talk about a lot of things that um, maybe people don't really like to discuss, but uh, I think it's important for a lot of people to hear. So I appreciate you coming on, man, um, leaving it all out here. Uh, we, we're really appreciative of your time, honestly. No, thank you. Thank you for having me, Fatty. I appreciate it. And I hope whoever is listening, you know, if you ever want to reach out, just just uh, don't forget you're never alone. Um, there's always people there to support you. If you need help, any kind of guidance or support, don't hesitate to reach out. Um, I never have an agenda. Uh, my agenda is for people to always to grow, to be better, and uh, just to be themselves. So, um, you know, keep taking care of yourselves, especially during this time. I know things are starting to open up again, and I know the pandemic period was difficult on a lot of people, but never give up. Keep shining and just keep pushing through. Amen. Thank you so much, Bubbly. I appreciate it, man. Thank you, Fatty. Yeah, have a good night. You too, man. Thank you. No worries. Take care. All right. Bye. All right, everyone. That was Mr. Bovely Cost. And uh, wow, what a discussion. I did not expect that uh, to go the way that it went. I, that article thing, I wasn't even going to bring up. And honestly, between between us, he has no idea I'm going to disclose this. But we actually recorded for a whole 10 minutes before I realized the recording was not re- actually recording. So we had to restart. So shout out to um, shout out to Bubbly for just doing that like a champ. And shout out to him for coming out and talking about everything. And even though it might seem, you know, unorthodox what he does, I think it's very important to see um, there are, you know, tons of Coptic people with different, you know, aspirations and different passions and different skills. And it's very important that we, um, you know, understand that and, and are really educated about it. So I appreciate you, Bubbly. Thanks for coming on the show. And everyone who's uh, tuning in, I appreciate you guys. Thanks so much for uh, for listening, for following, for being here. I appreciate it. You know where to find me, uh, Apple Podcast, Spotify. Just click subscribe and you'll hear about every episode as it comes out. Take care, guys. Have a good one.